This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Arsene Wenger has been in Japan for a year. He doesn't know anything about English football. I will love it if we beat them. This is football heritage. Con Giovanni, yeah, incredible. Dribble, 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 dribble. If you don't know the answer to that question, then I think you're, you, you, are, you are an ostrich. Winter is a time for lighting the fire, putting up the feet with a cup of hot chocolate and staying in under the blanket for the night. It is a time for a puffy jacket, fluffy hats and gloves that enable us to still use our phones. Except for one man. 40 minutes into Manchester United versus Everton, one man decided he was too warm, too dry and too calm. Big Duncan Ferguson. Hello and welcome to the Total Football Podcast. I'm your host, Egan Hart, and joining me is Andrew Conway. Hello. Andrew, he might not be the right manager for the Everton job, but is he the right man for the job? He certainly appears to be. He is the epitome of the macho Everton Evertonian fan. He is exactly what you want out of uh, your manager in a cold December away match at Old Trafford when against probably the run of form in the last few fixtures, Manchester United coming into this match, what, four wins on, a, on the trash, were they? Uh, three wins on the trash. Three going for in, four. In all competitions, yeah. The first time in a very long time they were in that position, back to when Solskjaer was first appointed. Um, so he had to show up and he had to front up. And you can tell from minute one, Duncan Ferguson wasn't one to shy away from, <laughs> say, making his presence known to the old Trafford faithful and to the travelling Everton support he was vocal he was visible and as you said he got his white shirt out into the rain into the cold and to that brisk wind I'm sure was swirling around the stadium uh, I noticed as well uh, during the match that none of his players were wearing gloves I thought that, <laughs> yeah. was, thought that was very it reminded me of Roy Keane that time when he was giving out about the Arsenal players not wearing gloves that was like all wearing gloves all wearing snuds you know yeah, uh, yeah. Then the, the fact that he played a defender in midfield. Like I saw the formation at first uh, on the team sheet before the match and thought it was like the piggy in the middle formation that you sometimes see once every once a season maybe. But he actually put a, uh, a defender in as well. Mason Holgate kind of moved into midfield. But uh, a strange... Uh, his, po- his post-match interview as well where he was asked about it, they did the post-match interview on the pitch with Jeff Shreves just walking around Old Trafford in a really... Yeah weird way and he talked about his love for 4-4-2 in a very very British sense it was a strange performance by a strange man Duncan Ferguson he has he has a special voice does Duncan Ferguson a very loyal Scottish voice that has been never been tainted by his years in Merseyside uh, yeah the the interviews on the pitch are becoming a norm now I noticed them after the Liverpool match as well yesterday when Milner and Salah were both interviewed on the side while they're still on the field reminds of a the rugby or a, a cup final that kind of interview happening and maybe it's going to become commonplace it is very common in US sports so maybe that's finally filtering down away from waiting 20 minutes and maybe grabbing someone out as they're trying to go and have a shower or go have a drink or something like that uh, maybe it's a it's a better way to catch players unaware and you might get something a bit more raw and a bit more natural rather than the prepared oh you know at the end of the day we're just happy to get three points you know that type of interview that they they often give um in fairness to Duncan Ferguson on the tactical side of things I thought it was the um, the antithesis of the classic four four two formation. I think playing Holgate in midfield was uh, an example of him trying to 
use a player who is known for, say, having a bit of a touch on the ball, having a bit of passing range, and introducing that into centre midfield, as well as having the kind of defensive security and stability that a that a known defender would have. And I think it was a way of kind of not to not to blow too much smoke at Duncan Ferguson, but similar to the way that uh, Pep Guardiola moved Philip Lamb into midfield to kind of bring that controlling nature and that, that positional sense he had from years. And not that Holgate has that, but from he has some experience on the wing and some experience in other areas of the field and bring it into deep central mid- midfield because it is it is a it's 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 a well worn trait, you know. A, as a player gets older, they withdraw further and further into the field and they become, you know, they use the skills they've learned elsewhere to be more defensively solid and to be better on the ball. And I think that was what they were trying to do to control the match in a game where maybe they sensed that they wouldn't or they would be given a lot of the ball, which they were in fairness to them. And it kind of worked to to a greater, greater or lesser extent. You know, it, it, took, it took the ingenuity of a young Mason Greenwood to actually do anything to stop Everton from getting the three points in the match. Yeah, like the the actual Everton performance, I thought was not great. Like Man United were just also not great as well. Like they didn't they didn't create neither side really created anything. It was like it took a a corner for Everton and an own goal for them to even look like scoring. And then, but they Man got United, that goal relatively early. In fairness, and then they kind of that was on half time. But that was their job done at that point. They were the away side. They weren't expecting to really dominate the match they were expected to have a lot of the ball which they did like more than say you would expect out of going to a large big Premier League side going to you know if they're at City they wouldn't expect to have as much of the ball as they did but at United they were given that well, they didn't have luxury. the ball they didn't have the ball like at all in the second half like the second half was just literally they decided to put the two banks of four and just sit back and defend and it was the right strategy because Man United yeah. really didn't have anything to answer for that. It was, as you mentioned, the ingenuity of a young 18-year-old, Mason Greenwood, that really was the difference. And, like, I said the same with Chelsea last week when they played Everton. Like, we've seen how poor Pickford has been lately. I don't understand why he's not being tested as much. Like, that felt like the only time he was really tested and he didn't cover himself in glory for the goal. Like, he probably didn't see it coming as early as, obviously, we would have from the camera angles. Uh, Mm. But... I still think, you know, like it was the same, it's the same with a lot of goalkeepers, like just diving down to their left seems to be a real weakness and especially so for Jordan Pickford. I feel like he concedes a lot of his goals that way Uh, and I wonder why more teams don't just try and attack that as early and as often as they can. Yeah, and there's an argument to be made for that and you, you often see some of the lower level managers have that go so just have a few shots on them see how the keeper does with them because you're right a lot of the modern keepers especially do struggle with the as John Charles used to say the essentials of the game you know people say keepers good shot stopper shot stopping is their job they have to be good at that but in recent years there's been a kind of move away from keepers who are that shot stopper of, of that class of keeper and in fairness Jordan Pickford I thought earlier in his career he was that kind of pl- that player who would get down and make those kind of quick saves agile saves to their body near their body but he seems to be falling into the same envelope and I don't know is it a case that training methods have moved on to to focus more on goalkeepers attacking abilities and to work work more on their footwork and because of that they're losing kind of some of the bulk and some of the um say uh what, how would you say it? explosiveness in their dives uh, because they're focused more on you know keeping their feet on, on keeping their feet on the ground rather than off the ground that they're losing that. But you're right, they're, they're, that kind of that kind of weakness in 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 
goalkeeping has has permeated the game. You're you're looking only at Ederson at, at Manchester City, who is renowned as one of the best keepers in the Premier League for the last few seasons, but he is very susceptible to those shots as well. And so it's not just Pickford, but Pickford has been in poor form. And I think if Everton had a better alternative at the moment, they probably would try and shake things up a bit. But I, I don't think Duncan Ferguson's going to throw their marquee, like effectively their marquee player under the bus at the moment. Uh, maybe that'll change if these goals keep creeping in. Well, it seems like he's got a different person he'd like to throw under the bus because Moise Keane was certainly thrown under the bus, I felt, watching the match. Coming coming off after only 18 minutes on the pitch after he was subbed on. Like, it's very... It's very uh, ignominious, I think would be the word to use. Anytime a, a sub is brought back off, especially when they're not injured. Like, or Yeah, if they are injured, it's fair enough. But, like, he seems surprised as well that he was being taken off. Uh, like, it looked like the camera angle, the, the way they showed it on TV made it look like Alex Wobey was the one going to come off, which I think mm. would have made more sense just because, well, taking off Keane would, was, would sound ridiculous and it was a bit ridiculous. And he just trudged off to the, to the tunnel then immediately after coming off. Like he's had a very tumultuous time there at Everton in a short period there. And this really doesn't seem like things are going to get better anytime soon. Yeah, it it doesn't look good for for the guy. Like I, I there is stories going around that he isn't a hundred percent there, and he's still acclimatizing to the English game. But I, I think he's a supremely talented player. His his goals, his important goals he scored at Juventus last year showed that. And the bit, the little sparks we had at the beginning of the season when he kind of got into good positions and into good play before he kind of went away for a few months, basically, um, make make you think that there is a player there, but. Yeah, there was always a risk of this, especially at a big match, and especially with Duncan Ferguson. Clearly, I know his his hand was forced in some way due to matters on the field that forced early substitutions. But yeah, it was a bit of a, a strange call, I think, overall taking him off when he took him off. You know, you could have done something different. I think you could have made it work in a different way. But uh, I'd say that's Duncan Ferguson learning management on the job. I think a more experienced manager probably would have waited a while if they were going to make that change. Or would have figured another way around it, as you're saying, bringing off a Wobie or some other player that may have made more sense in the whole stream of the match. Because he said, like taking off Keane kind of re- changed the 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 fulcrum of the of the Everton team uh, because they no longer had that kind of player to run to just play long balls to run and chase match and play high pressing up up the field. They kind of lost that as soon as he came off. Um, yeah, I wonder. Will he survive Christmas at Everton? It'll depend on who comes in as the manager, if if indeed a manager does come in before the January window. But, you know, there's a lot of clubs, I think, that would want him. It's like I hope he doesn't go back to Italy, but I can easily see him being a worthwhile investment from the likes of Inter, even on a loan, for the rest of the season, because they need a different type of attacking player, and he is that. Uh, I just think with what happened when he was at Juve, he, he himself might be a bit uh, cautious of going back to Italy after everything. But he is Italian, there when he was like, at, and he, he, it is a there is a tournament coming up if he wants to get into that side. I think he has to be playing regularly, which he hasn't really been at Everton. And I think being in the focus and the limelight back in Italy could help him. That that guy is he, he's not going to worry about going back to Italy, isn't? I'm sure he's a stronger character than that. Yeah, maybe, you know, it certainly seems possible that he could leave Everton uh, on a loan deal. I don't know what they'd be willing to sell him just yet, like, uh, you know, cut their ties on a loss on that. will be very early to make that decision. Uh, But then, uh, with Man United, I think this is a match where, you know, it's just obvious, you know, we've said it before this season, their midfield is not up to to standard. Fred, McTominay. Scott McTominay. uh, I, I, like I, they played well the two of them in the in the matches where they didn't dominate midfield against Tottenham and against 
Man City, but they're just not good enough to break down these sides that decide to just sit back, let Man United have the ball, you know, try try break us down. Like they they're not good enough. Particularly no. Fred, who you know we've commented on a lot on the show. Like he, his one footedness is just yeah so obvious. Like anytime he gets on the ball, it's just you know, get him on his right foot, get him on his right foot. He yeah. seems almost afraid to play a pass too far forward. Like there were a few times where Lingard was, you could see, he was trying to make runs to get into the just even half spaces, and Fred just was not willing to give the ball. Um, you know, I think. I think if they had Pogba in this match, he would have not. Nece- I don't think they necessarily would have won, but they would have created more chances to yeah. win this match. Uh, and they re- like they really need to sort out what's going on there. Like he-, he was supposed to be back by now. There's talks that you know he just wants to go. That there it is yeah. unsettled and all that. So uh, like I don't think Paul Pogba is unprofessional in the way that he would just sack off this season because he didn't get what he wanted. Like I think well, I think at one point he's getting he there already. Injured. It's only halfway through the season, nearly. I think at one point he did get injured, but it does seem like he should be back by now. Like the, and you we gave told, out to me for saying that he looked like he just wanted to leave and force a move through, and you were saying, no, no, he's got an ankle injury. No, no, I, I, like, I, I do think he, he was injured. I just wonder how injured is he now? Like it, We were told you know, he'd be back maybe late November, certainly early December. Well, it's mid-December yeah. now. Where is no he? Those, yeah. those questions need to be asked. Like, Has something happened with him behind the scenes? Like, I, I do think... Like I don't want to disgrace, uh, denigrate his professionalism. I think he is uh, a professional player. Like you know, he played those first few games before the injury. Okay. Uh, he played quite well, uh, but I think regardless of what goes on with Pogba, they need to try and sign a midfielder in January. Like they brought on Juan Mata uh, late in the match, and I felt like at that point bringing on Juan Mata was okay. Well, we don't think we're even going to get a two-one here because Juan Mata is not good enough to break down these defenses anymore. He's past it. He's just yeah. not good enough anymore. Uh, and I I wonder, like, why is he still at Man United? I think he was given a contract extension in July. Like, why? The same reason Phil Jones was given a contract, a contract extension. The same way Jesse Lingard's been basically out of the Manchester United side all season. Although, they, I know there's other circumstances there. there. There is a lack of trust between Solskjaer and a lot of those players that he kind of built his initial run on back last year this time last year nearly when did he start in, just after Christmas was it? Uh, Mourinho was sacked on the 18th so whatever the Saturday was after that okay but, yeah you see like this it's so I, I agree with you that it does seem likely it does seem that it would be useful for Manchester United to get an attacking or not even attacking a, a functional midfielder who's able to lose, use both field feet who's able to link up play and who's able to create chances someone like Perisic who they tried to get last year but I don't think it would help United in the in the even the medium run because the, I know you're saying oh it'll fill the problem now they'll create more chances they might get a result against the likes of Everton but the the problem with United and it's been the problem for several years now it's been the problem since really the the end of the the Ferguson era maybe Van Hal tried to do something different at that point but I don't think any manager really has established a clear style of play that they want to do like what do Manchester United want to be I think that's the decision that should dictate what type of midfielder they sign not just get one for the sake of getting one uh, because they don't have a, 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 a way they want to play like Fred you know we've been saying the last few weeks he's been okay he's, he's, he's performed alright for a lot of the performances he started in the last few weeks but that you know, you're saying oh he's very one footed and he never passed the ball too far forward. And I agree, that's precisely correct, but that's the type of player he is. He's a circulation player. That was the reason why Pep Guardiola wanted him several years ago when United swooped in and stole him. 
the he just wanted another guy in midfield to just kind of pass the ball around and move pass and move and pass and move Manchester United don't play that way but Manchester United need a guy who's able to take the ball on move through midfield carry the ball forward uh, interchange with the players around him and move like not just move the ball move himself and if that's the type of footballer they want they lose a lot in the defensive structure which means they have to accommodate him and they need another player like Scott McTominay so we're looking at them actually needing two players rather than one midfielder for at Christmas if they want to play that way but I don't know if that's a long term goal in Manchester United to play that way I, I don't get that sense from Solskjaer like he, the only like there's a good and bad way to say this like Solskjaer plays a game of football because he wants to win a game of football he doesn't play a game of football because he thinks about football in a certain way and he thinks this is the way it should be played that's good it's it's noble in in some regards and he's doing what's right for the club in the moment but at the same time it's not something to build a future around uh but for now it just seems like man, you know, it's another missed opportunity it's, another, it's not necessarily two giant steps backwards but it is another case where they've taken a step forward and then just taken two steps backwards so they they continue to just kind of exist in that weird plane at the moment where they're just not good enough for top four but they haven't quite fallen off the cliff in the way that Arsenal have or Tottenham did there until they brought in Mourinho uh, but yeah it's it's you know we'll see if they actually do anything in January they've been linked with yeah. Holland but I don't think that's really necessarily what they need Jaden Sancho who they've been linked with who again is imagine just buying another they'll basically have another player that plays exactly the same position as uh, all of their attacking players he's basically yeah, Mason Greenwood uh, Jesse Lingard uh, Marcus Rashford Alexis Sanchez on loan all of them play that kind of role that Jaden Sancho plays so they would just be you know again putting another lick of paint on a car that has no engine if to use that old Zidane analogy and then Liverpool's gap at the top of the table has moved to 10 points now after a match with against Watford it's really the only way to describe it it was just kind of a match that happened neither team is impressive Liverpool clearly just have a way better players so they're just obviously going to win that match uh, Watford created a couple chances but completely whiffed at the ball every time in a really bizarre way it was like they'd never seen a football before well they are you know that's it kind of tells of where they are in the table like they are bottom of the table they aren't they haven't reached double figures yet which is kind of in a league that's very even this year when we have what 16th place Everton have 18 points and fourth place Chelsea have 29 points so there's only 10 points separating the relegation zone and Champions League football that you know Watford are properly cut adrift at the moment haven't even reached double figures yet they're they're not very good they're lacking confidence they're lacking in a management team uh they're lacking a lot of things at the moment and I I don't see them really pulling themselves out of the the quagmire they're in anytime soon they don't look like they're scoring like they they always have players who can create chances for them but they never they couldn't get going this season with, with scoring goals and that's really what's held them up uh, going back the way they haven't actually conceded that many goals I know I think they're the third most conceded goals they've only conceded 32 goals this season which is uh, you know not the worst in the league I think Southampton are way above that and Norwich are ahead of them as well and there's pretty like I think Burnley are pretty near them too but they've only scored nine goals and that's really that's that's not enough goals if you want to say in the Premier League Liverpool on the other hand I think they're just they played a four four two formation. It was different to the way they normally play. They have a lot of matches coming up. They, I think they conserved energy. They did enough to win the game. I think it was good game management from Klopp and the Liverpool players considering they're not holding a giant squad and they have a lot of those matches coming up. They did 
without coming out of second gear really they 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 cruised to a victory there you know you could say that Watford had chances Liverpool were lucky in some regards but I think if push came to shove Liverpool would have put more more emphasis on the match and won it in the end if they had to uh, and they're off to Qatar now we don't see them play in the Premier League till Boxing Day or St Stephen's Day if you want to call it that uh, against Leicester, uh, so bit of bit of bit of a break, I suppose. Really, we consider going off to Qatar. Like obviously, Qatar will be very warm, and you know that has its own issues as well, being in Qatar. But it all like I saw the suggestion that it's just kind of like going to warm weather training yeah. that they usually do. Like maybe it'll actually be good for them, as opposed to everyone. Like it'll give them an advantage over everyone else. Yeah, and the way the semi-finals are, I think they're playing the Ocean or the Oceania or the Asian Champions League winners. I think that's who they're playing first in their semi-final. In Qatar, uh, is that right? I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know because uh, watch them call it uh, from. Oh my God! What are the name? Flamengo, isn't it? Flamengo, yeah. Flamengo are playing the African champions, which will be the harder of the two ties, definitely. Uh, so I think Liverpool have an easy enough, comparatively speaking, semi-final going into the final. Uh, whoever that will be against, probably against you'd expect against uh, Flamengo, but. You would know, and Flamengo are a good side to play high-pressure football, and I suppose Liverpool will kind of want to be at their best. They'll want to win this trophy. It's not a trophy you win very often, and it is a team that beat Liverpool in the exact same trophy back in 1980. So there is revenge, if you will, uh, up for grabs in it. I think it will be like a warm-weather training camp for them. It'll be similar to what Bayern Munich are going to do in in January when they're on their winter break. Uh, like it, it, It's funny how it's worked out for them. It's a slightly less arduous journey than the normal journey they take to Tokyo to do this uh, tournament uh, so there's benefits to be gained for Liverpool in it and at the same time I don't see like we'll come on to the Man City match they 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 haven't had any banana skins yet since the Liverpool and Man City played each other but uh, apart from obviously the Man United derby but you know I don't see any of the clubs immediately below Liverpool getting anything out of the the next week or so of of football I don't see them gaining anything great momentum or anything like that so I think this weekend has been pretty kind to Liverpool overall yeah it helps the second play third next week as well which really kind of maximises the return for Liverpool really of how much they can or minimises really rather the how much momentum either team can get yeah. Uh, but then Chelsea now, they've lost four of the last five Premier League games. The only team they've managed to beat in the last five is Aston Villa at home, which is not, you know, just beating John Terry, which is kind of funny when you think about it. Uh, yeah. But at Bournemouth this time, uh, they've lost to Bournemouth at home in the past, to be fair, so they are a bit of a bogey team for them. Uh, but the performance just wasn't really great, especially considering this is their starting eleven. really. Like, if you were to think about... Chelsea overall, this is the team you'd pick if they absolutely had to play their best team, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, so, and there's a, yeah. there's a lot of talk that uh, Frank Lampard's taken a leaf out of his uncle's book. Uh, Harry, Harry, no, Harry Redknapp is his uncle, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. His uncle's book of, uh, you know, wanting to, you know, putting out teams that necessarily won't won't be at their best. You know, players who may have played a lot of minutes in the last few weeks or players who are a bit old to be playing as many matches as they're playing at the moment to show that oh yeah we need to sign players we need to sign players now you know uh, it felt a little bit like that that they weren't overly stretching themselves I felt that even when they played West Ham whenever that was uh, two weeks ago now that you know Chelsea aren't really digging up the earth you know pulling up trees as they say to, to try and chase teams down and really put them to the sword and losing these matches as they have been it's kind of oh, weird if you if, if you catch my drift 
And, and they've really allowed the likes of Tottenham, Wolves, Man United, even Sheffield United to an extent back into this kind of top four race yeah. that they look like they had a, they, they looked like they had a bigger cushion than a couple of weeks, if you get me. Like it felt like if they were to give up that gap, it'd be mid January, late January, not December, right before they play Tottenham. Yeah, but matches come thick and fast in the league, and you know it, they have lost. As you said, they've lost four of their last five matches. You know, yeah, that's the form not is a, just nosedived. You know, that's twelve points they've given up. That's they they would easily be in second place now if they hadn't lost those matches. You know, that's that's the scenario that they're looking at, given the the way the teams above them have performed in the last few weeks. Like the the biggest winner in all of this, I think. I know what you're saying. Sheffield United are there. Wolves are there. Manchester United are there within touching distance within two matches of them really like Spurs are within one match of them but Spurs are have been the biggest winner in all of this because they haven't Spurs have not been very good either they, they've they you know they've had a couple of good performances as we saw last week say but the it's like every second game Spurs play they're kind of riding their luck and scraping out the victory and I think that happened again this weekend I didn't think much of their overall performance it's just about enough and going into Christmas, I think they could continue doing just about enough, and that could be a real worry for Chelsea. I didn't think Spurs would have enough in them, really, between the, the players they had out and between, between that and the Mourinho factor. I didn't think they would get near the top four, maybe sixth, maybe fifth. But they, they look to be the biggest challengers chasing down Chelsea at the moment. And obviously, momentum can shift. Maybe Tottenham will go on to lose four of the next five. Like It, it, is, it is kind of such yeah. an up-and-down season that we can't really predict what's going to happen yeah. next like it's wide open like speaking of like we're talking about Arsenal they're completely cut adrift Arsenal are only four points off Tottenham you know I know uh, they have some tough games coming up as well but you can imagine two, it's only a two game turnaround in the way that the matches are, are falling the schedule that's that's one week and you could see Arsenal be in fifth place in theory but not that I think it's going to happen But and that's a team completely cut adrift of, of the top of the league yeah, like let's talk about Arsenal now. Like they, you say they could, in theory, be within yeah. fifth, but the way they're playing at the moment, I can't see it happening anytime soon. Uh, they were just—it's not even that they were particularly dreadful. I don't against think they were particularly City. bad. Yeah. It's just that, like, they've been so bad this season that performing slightly better is still not a good sign. Like they were still bad against Man City. Man City, like we talk about Liverpool not having to get out of second gear to beat last place Watford at home, but. City were away playing against Arsenal and they never really got out of first gear. Like they scored after what two minutes and then yeah, it was like, two oh, minutes this is done. Ahead. Like then like, the second goal just kind of happened and then the third goal came after Arsenal had a bunch of possession, didn't really do anything with it, and then Kevin De Bruyne just scored a fantastic goal. He played a great game himself. Yeah, Kevin De Bruyne was on top form, has been in previous weeks, has been all the season. Really, it's been. I personally think it's his best. I didn't think it was going to happen at the end of the season, but I think it's been the best couple of months he's had since he came back from his last injury, uh, if it was even a couple of months ago, because he, he's been knocking in goals. He scored that great goal against Newcastle, scored another couple of really good goals against Arsenal today. He's been hitting assists left, right and centre. He's 10 already in the league this season, which is, I think, three ahead of the nearest rival, who is, uh, I want to say, Song. Uh, some me, what, the Spurs player, I've uh, what's his second name? Hyung Min Sun. Hyung Min Sun. Uh, I think he's three ahead of him at the moment um, in the assist chart. So he's looking to be quite safe in that if he continues at this kind of pace. Uh, but in, in fairness, Man City, they 
the first couple of minutes against Arsenal were frenetic. Like Arsenal did have a chance within the first minute to get something. Martinelli, who was a bright spark for Arsenal, there's a lot of bright sparks in the, in the performances over the last week or two, ten days, say. And I think he's one in particular. But like, there, there's a couple of things you can look at with the with the Man City goals. They were all, for the most part, with the exception of uh, De Bruyne's long range effort, which we'll come to. Uh, they were carbon, you know, not carbon copies, but they were the standard. You know, trick trademark copyright Man City goals or copyright Pep Guardiola goals, getting the ball down one flank and then crossing it to the other flank. And I know everyone should be ready to you know ready to battle that, but it's the old Aryan Robin trick of he's always going to go in on his left foot, but yet everyone falls for it every time. And I think it was a bit of that as well in today's match. There's another the kind of contributing factor I think about the two of them three Man City goals, which was Sai Kalasinac because. He was cut out for two, the two goals, the first two goals, I believe, of uh, just not being in the right position and not really going after the the ball, just kind of being stuck in a, a position between left back and centre back. He he didn't have his position right at all. The first one let De Bruyne finish really well into the top corner, but Kalasinac was in the way. Neither got in. The, he he kind of got out of the way of the ball. He kind of made a little darting movement with his head, but didn't actually try and throw himself at the ball. And by doing by standing kind of in in where he was in the six yard box, he was blocking Burnt Leno from actually trying to even get a dive off. Not that I think he would have stopped it. It was a very good finish, but that was one point. And then the second one was he completely lost Sterling for the second goal. His positions was terrible, and it was a tap in for Sterling because he'd lost the only player that was meant to be marking him. After that, Arsenal brought on a winger to cover Kolasinac because he got injured. And in fairness, for the third goal, Arsenal were down to 10 men. The goal came from the left-hand side. Mesut Ozil was trying to be the left-back, you know, and that never ends well. And De Bruyne made a fantastic finish. But there was mitigating circumstances for that third goal. And for the other two, I think Kolasinac has a lot of blame to hold. And that's the result of Arsenal losing their first-choice left-back for three months after him just really getting into into the team in, in their last match against West Ham. So... You, you, I know Man City never really had to get into like hyperdrive or never really had to push Arsenal too far to get their goals, but at the same time there were circumstances that 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 contributed to the to how easy it was for Man City in the end, and I think Arsenal did a bit okay to cover themselves in a bit of pride. Like Pepe, I think played okay. Aubameyang looks tired. Uh, Saka who came on, who's is is even eighteen yet? Is he still seventeen? Uh, played as a auxiliary left back and he's a left winger uh, and he scored at the in midweek as well and had another assist in a two all draw. You know, I think there's we could talk about the 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 contrasts or the comparison or the similarities between Manchester United, Chelsea, and Arsenal this season in that they're all been promoting and even Spurs to a lesser extent, but certainly United, uh, Chelsea, and Arsenal have been promoting youth, have been doing, you know, have been really they've been losing matches they've been losing on kind of bad ways you know if you want to say like they've been not trying enough or being caught out or being naive in matches at the same time it's great learning opportunity for all these young players at least I think three to four academy prospects are playing in every single match for these clubs and I think learning from a match against Man City which was never expected for us to win but being solid after coming on and setting down and keeping it at 3-0 for the rest of the match after going down so early to that goal scoreline they they can gain something from that. I don't know if it's a lot, but I think it'll be something for them going forward and going into the rest of the season. I just think with Arsenal, it feels a bit like they're throwing random players onto the pitch and seeing what'll stick, and then nothing really has stuck. Like it feels like. Well, go on. No matter what, give me an example feel, there. 
like they just kind of threw out a bunch of young like they are just throwing out young players in a way that I'd say Frank Lampard and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer haven't been where it seems like you know say with Mason Greenwood at Man United it feels like he's very much being nurtured like oh we'll give him this amount of minutes this match this yeah. amount of minutes the next match and grow him into the side whereas because Arsenal have been so poor it feels like they're being forced into just oh we'll throw this guy into left back we'll throw this guy in a right wing we'll throw on this midfielder because like Emil Smith Rowe came on for his first appearance today uh, in the league for Ozil yeah. and I felt like more because Ozil is so bad now he's performing so poorly that oh we just have to throw on this kid we don't really have any other option like this guy we have to throw him under the bus here and go with a youth player uh, like I'd kind of prefer if they just at this point threw out the kids from the start uh, and yep. see what they could do with them because throwing them in 10 minutes ago 3-0 down against Man City is doing no one any favours uh, like Ozil got a couple of boos from the crowd when he went off he got angry he was visibly angry uh, on the touchline he Everything normally is li- he normally is yeah but uh, there's something about this one where he's getting booed as well it's just a, it, and the situation around Arsenal seems still toxic enough like the, they were booed off at half time as well. I can't. I don't know. Did they bother boo them off at full time? Those who did remain. There were the also many left. Yeah. Uh, like it just feels I, like the it's it's harsh on the young players. Like it's a bad learning environment for them. Like yeah. they need a solution, and it just goes to show that like throwing out like these different ideas, going with uh, different starting 11s, like they they're just gonna continue to play poorly, and it's just. The squad is not good enough to cover over the cracks of the systemic issues that they have uh, at board level. Uh, like L- Freddie Lumberg is just kind of manager, uh, and we don't know how long more he's going to be manager. He doesn't know what staff he can use. Like Per Mertzacker yeah. was promoted there this week alone. Uh, he doesn't know like can he sign anyone in January? Is there anyone they can sign in January? Like and. Aside from that, the board don't seem to know who they want to bring in. They're kind of going all over the place, looking at this kind of manager, this other kind of manager, this third different kind of manager, up until they just ask everyone, oh, you know, do you want the job? And it doesn't seem like the kind of job a lot of managers really want to step into because it is so messy. Yeah, yeah, you're making good points there. Like, to to answer your first one about Emil Smith-Rowe and the Ozil situation, there's obviously a lot of political things going on with Ozil this week. And maybe the Ozil knows his time is numbered at Arsenal. He wanted to make the point before he left to leave one last time bomb with the Arsenal, the football club itself. Um, I think Smith-Rowe's a good player. I think he played okay when he came on. I think a lot of these young players... I know what you're saying that they're throwing them at they're, he's Jumberg's throwing young players at, at the fire and hoping something sticks really on the wall the other end of it um, but there, there are circumstances to be held there like Hector Bellerin uh, did his hamstring on Monday in, in his warm up against West Ham so Ainsley Maitland-Niles playing right back he's not a right back but he you know he's doing okay deputising there Kolasinac had to go off injured that he, he I think at least a twisted ankle hopefully it's not worse than that but that's why uh, Saka came on because Klasnach is the backup left back. So then you don't have a backup left back. You go to your, your your kids really. That's why he was saying. I know what you're saying in other areas of the field that they're they're looking like you know okay we keep, they every, they haven't played the same two centre backs match after match this season. It's, they keep swapping, chopping, and changing, and maybe they haven't found the right combination yet. But I I know it's a, it's a tough job for Lundberg. He doesn't know what he's he's doing to a to a large extent. He has made the point about it not having any staff. Like and Per Marisak has made the point that he doesn't want to be a coach. So he's I know he's been elevated to the position of assistant manager now, and he he's the one that's actually giving tactical instructions to the players on the on the sidelines before they come on. But I don't think he wants that job, and I don't think it's it's in his future. So 
whether Lumber gets other staff given to him if he is indeed to be the manager until whenever a, a new one is approach, uh, appointed. That that is a, an important topic to cover, as well as the, the potential for them signing players in the in the Christmas window, if if they're allowed to, because there is gaps in the squad, even just created by injury, let alone the kind of player shortages they have in terms of quality. Like there is, there's plenty of players at Arsenal, but not many of them are very good for anything really. Like Granit Xhaka could. I don't know what what is his point anymore. I, I know he makes a point about Ossos, and Jamie Carragher actually today I heard him make a very good point about Ossos that Kevin De Bruyne is a player that people at Arsenal think also this, and he, I I could see it, you know. He and he didn't mean it in a derogatory way, really. He just meant it in Ossos can be excellent some days, but he's not all the time. And kind of the player you hear Arsenal fans and Arsenal play, management talk about is the player that Kevin De Bruyne is, and Ossos really hasn't been that player for several years if he has ever been that player. So there is arguments all over the place for a lot of change and a lot of issues to be fixed. And as you say, that's not an attractive prospect for any manager to walk into. And Mikel Arteta was on the sideline today. I read a piece in, I think Michael Cox wrote in in The Athletic there during the week about how the first time Arsenal played uh, Manchester City under Pep, uh, Pep gave over the team to Arteta and he managed the side to a 3-1 victory. And I got the impression a bit today that it was a bit like that again, that Arteta was managing Man City against Arsenal and he kind of did what he needed to do to get the victory out of them. It's the history of the Tottenham. We believe in the history. Last week saw the end of the Champions League group stage. With only 16 teams left in the knockout round draw due on Monday, it's time to evaluate the teams left in the competition as well as evaluate the competition's place on the football calendar itself. Talks of a breakaway Super League persist, as well as general talk of reforming the Champions League, but one thing is certain, the group stage in its current current guise is not fit for purpose. So what's next for the Champions League, and who will lift the crown come the end of the season? Well, they're very loaded questions. I I think... We we've had this discussion in the in the era of the Champions League as it existed since ninety two, several times. Um, I remember the double groups. I remember the, which were very annoying at certain points, uh, but now you look back and they're actually producing fantastic matches. Where you'd have a second group of six, or you'd have a second group of four teams, six matches, uh, four groups of four, six matches each. And the winners then would go into the quarterfinals. And they were saying, oh, there's too many matches in Europe. or There's too many Champions League matches. Fast forward to a few years ago, and they were saying, oh, the, the, the big teams want another two or three Champions League matches a season. You know, they want to get that extra revenue in. And now we're looking at, oh, they need to get rid of more matches again. So teams can't decide what they want. You're, you're writing that the, the group stage doesn't work as a, as a vehicle at the moment. It's too many dead rubbers. Even, you know, when they concoct you know, high quality groups the way that we had. Who who did we have? Inter who was in the inter group again? Uh Barcelona, Brucey Dorman and Slavia Prague. Yeah, like that was a a strong group that would produce you would think would produce good matches. Didn't really. You know, we had Napoli and Liverpool in the in a in a group with Salzburg, which produced fantastic matches in some to some extent, but you wouldn't have expected at the onset. They were the Salzburg were the weaker side coming into it. But the majority of groups, you know, went as you thought they were. Were there any shocks really? Inter probably get not getting out. But then you look at their recent form and you look at who their managers. You didn't, ex- you know, you would. Ex- oh yeah, fair enough. They don't get through to the next round of the Champions League. But you know, there were no real, there were no real shocks in the Champions League this so far, were there? Like I think it says a lot that the closest thing to a shock is a side like Ajax getting dumped out in the group stage. 
an IXI that completely deconstructed itself during the summer. It's amazing they're even as good as they were, to be honest. They they should have gone through, but, you know, it, it's a completely, they have ex- excuses, really, that are valid. Um, but, yeah, you're you're right. Like that's That means it doesn't work. Like, and I've said it many times before, and I know you're going to disagree with me, but open seeding seems like an ideal way to go. And in that case, you get make them... There's you make every match count because likely you'll have imagine if you had a group with Real Madrid, Manchester City, uh, Bayern Munich and Juventus. You know every See, one of those teams' season depends on doing well in the Champions League, really. And if you get two of them knocked out at, uh, in in November, December, that's you know it, they'll try harder earlier in the year, which leads to more and better matches. My issue with that is then we will end up with groups that like just get completely ignored because the four teams in it are just completely uninteresting yeah, i'll live with that we well, might get I, that might spread the wealth of european football a bit more so the likes of porto or the likes of one of the russian sides or slavia prague will be able to hold on to their players for a bit longer could progress longer in the champions league make greater revenue could be better sides and you get a, a, a situation like you had where you have these winners come out and it isn't just a surprise a shock over one season you get growth in these other leagues which is something the European Super League's members the likes of the G14 or whatever they're called now the big big teams in Europe don't want to see but I think it would be better for the game as a whole see the other issue I'd have is I think it would still lead to dead rubbers just because of the nature of the fact that they play each other six times they play each other twice to make six games like by the time we get to the sixth game, like, look at how many dead rubbers we had this week. Like, I'd say only two, three matches really mattered yeah. in the end. And, like, they were, they were still close groups. But yeah. it was just by the time they got to the sixth game, like, look at the group with Orby Leipzig, Zenit St. Petersburg, Benfica and Leon. Like, Leipzig were through by that final game. So when they played Leon, Leon had the advantage of playing a team that didn't really care what happened yeah and they were able to go through because of it like it just kind of undermines the whole process but, but that's the problem with round robins in general if that's what you want like if you want a group stage matches to guarantee a certain amount of matches per per champions league playing team you will have the inevitability of having those dead rubbers the other thing is that you just listed a group there very interesting that sounds exactly like a group that would exist in a in a in a, in a non-seeded tournament that you would be worrying about though you'd have these terrible groups with not very good teams in it we had that even though we had seeded teams so you you know there 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 is i think there's a lot of arguments for not having seeding and going yeah, into the, one of these tournaments I think I think one of those groups always exists every year like I, I always think of them as the group of Porto in it obviously yeah, Porto weren't in the Champions League yeah. this year so Benfica took the mantle yeah but or whatever well, Russian side got seat, top seeds yeah uh, the other but, the other so side we only get one of those though is my argument yeah, really. but like, like I think we get two or three of those but I think but I'd live with generally that. it's okay I, I understand that you live with it but I think overall the bigger issue is the group stage process in and of itself more so than the seeding. So do you want a straight knockout? So I'm I'm fine with a straight knockout as well, don't get me wrong. I'd like, love a straight knockout no seeding. What would I, I agree with no seeding in, in a in a not in a knockout, straight knockout scenario. Like what what is the most entertaining aspect of the Champions League over the last four or five years? It has been the last sixteen, the quarterfinal, the semifinal. They've been like they've been really entertaining. We've had some really great moments, some really like wild nights where the unexpected really happened like think of the 6-1 even like that was really that was a magical night where football really showed like anything is still possible in this sport Absolutely. like we never thought we'd see uh, a PSG capitulate like that going into it I was laughing at the idea that they could get knocked out but now I'm just laughing at the idea that they did get knocked out 
like like these knockout stages have proven fantastic they've been a great equalizer uh we have seen upsets like this over recent years we have seen the likes of ajax the likes of monaco come through we don't quite have one the this likes year, of juventus you know the, the the little the little club from italy getting into two champions seeing seen as a fairy tale i don't know if that's exactly romantic but yeah i get your point that there has been quality cup games and kind of drama that that you'd associate with a with a cup tournament that's kind of open and, and crazy and anything can happen like Barcelona can lose 4-0 away from home or whatever you know I I do get what you're saying there but uh, I don't know like, how to resolve like, the problem without like I, introducing one of these measures like I think with this season as well like we do have to talk about the 16 teams left in the competition as well like it is the first time that it's only teams from the top five leagues which i think is indicative of like where we've been heading for the last few years like it was only a matter of time before something like this happened yeah and it is a worrying trend like obviously in amongst those 16 there are a couple teams where it's like oh fair play to them for managing that like atlanta like they are the really the standout like fair play to them for actually getting through and it was an incredible comeback for them with one point from four games to get through in that group is really impressive like i I don't think i've ever seen a team do that before and they did it in a really interesting way like they really went for it in that game against shakhtar away from home although you know shakhtar were technically away from home as well uh, but they really went for it. They won 3-0. Shakhtar completely collapsed in, in a way that you'd associate with the knockout tournament match, like PSG yeah. in the past. And so that was entertaining, but like that was the only really meaningful match that happened this week. They're the only really meaningful side left in the competition that like the, that can be seen as an underdog that we can all kind of root for in the way that we have with other teams in the past. Yeah, well, Gennaro Gattuso's Napoli, you know, that's... <laughs> Yeah, like it says a lot that Napoli won 4-0, qualified for the next round, and then they sacked Carlo Ancelotti. Like, I get that there's other stuff going on behind the scenes Yeah, there, the, the, the word still. was going out that he was being sacked on the Monday. <laughs> like, that was... Like, obviously, Napoli are just kind of a bizarre club run by a, a special man, yes. I'll say. Uh, but it's, it's still, a special place, Napoli. It really is. Uh, they, lo- they love the pizza there. Uh, but, like, I think it says yeah. a lot that... I think if they if, if this was a few years ago, even Napoli wouldn't have done that. They would have still gone. Oh, he's doing a good job here with the Champions League. Let's 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 stick with him and see can we resolve whatever issues are going on at the moment. But they were just like, no, we've got our money. We can cut our losses here and just try focusing on qualifying for next season in the league. Which, like, it is just kind of that cycle where we're getting plenty of teams who are just happy to be in the group stage every year as well. Which is another annoying thing. Like, if we get yeah. rid of those the safety net of six games and remove it down to two and you earn more revenue the longer you're in then we'll get more interesting sides in the competition we'll get more interesting matchups and we'll see teams be more motivated to stay in the competition like did barcelona really try for any of those six matches like i felt like they just kind of were like okay we have messi we'll draw messi did a little bit yeah Yeah, we'll beat dortmund at home and inter at home and we'll be we'll be sorted like they didn't even bring messi to Inter in the last game like that was a true dead rubber Inter still managed to lose that match which is Inter's own incredible ability takes some skill yeah. yeah they're a special club themselves it's uh, just Conte's but, record you know Conte just doesn't like the European Cup it's not even it's like if you it, but it's not Conte himself alone like Inter as well are a team that like they did the same thing last year like they all they needed to do was beat PSV in the final game who had nothing to play for and they still drew like they yeah. this is that was and they put Conte. Spurs into the final Champions League yeah, it was all. It's all his. It was all. Yeah, it's all Spalletti's fault. Pochettino better have sent him a fruit basket or something. I bet you did. Good energy. Good energy. Yeah, 
it's all about the feng shui or whatever he, he does. Uh, but I, I think I, one of the radical ideas that I've thought about, like I haven't really heard of any good radical ideas uh, put forward by people in power at the no. Middle East that sound like good ideas or sound like something that I'd love to watch or even just like to watch or be interested to watch. It sounds like, like a Super League sounds like a terrible idea, not only as a viewer, but for the teams that would be involved. Like Bayern Munich... If they're in a Super League at the moment, you'd imagine they'd be last or, or near it. Yeah, they'd be near like, the bottom. And Bayern Munich are a club, like, that, that's serious whiplash for them to go from being Hollywood FC, this big attraction in Germany, to being a complete laughingstock of last place. Like, the that would be embarrassing for them. And I can't imagine mm. it's something they'd want to to be. Some, like, it's not something they'd want to have happen to them or something happen to them consistently. Like, imagine if Bayern Munich just kind of became the Bournemouth of yeah. a European Super League like that's not but the future they want every single team that would join the Super League has that potential and you've seen it already with the way that certain teams have faced transition in even the last two decades when you even the likes of Barcelona dropped to mid-table in Spain 15 years ago like Manchester United have done it Arsenal have done it Man City you know relegated 20 years ago or 25 years ago whatever it was now uh, these teams would all see themselves as being in Europe's top echelon. They're not really. A lot of them don't don't deserve to be there right now, and they've been replaced by other teams who probably would like to see themselves in that European Super League. And who's to say they could have the 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 staying power to be be in in a couple of years? Who who Atlanta probably couldn't be stained in that way in the next few years, but they certainly are in that group right now. So. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a very short-sighted thing by all those clubs if they actually do pursue a European Super League in its current guise. Yeah, so the the idea I've kind of been thinking about, I've had I've thought about this for a while now, is I think that the Champions League should be brought back to what it was initially with the European Cup, like only have the champions in it. I think that would be a really, I think that would really make the competition like it would add weight to the competition like yeah. when I, whenever I read back to because obviously I wasn't alive when it was just a European Cup with only champions so when I read back I think about how much more it meant to teams that were in the competition like mm-hmm. uh, I was reading recently about uh, Matt Busby when he was uh, man- manager of Manchester United and they uh, it was the year before they'd won it in 68 and they got to the semi-final in 67 or maybe it was 66 and they lost, and and the, they lost in the semi final to uh, Partizan Belgrade. Uh, I think it was Miguel Delaney did a piece on this when they were playing in the Europa League group stage there. And uh, what it meant to Busby when they lost in the semi final, that kind of the weight and that significance of of losing, it doesn't seem like it's there at the moment. Like it feels like if, say, Barcelona losing the semi final again this year, it's like oh well, we'll probably be in the semi final next year as well. Yeah. Because we just we're there's such an obvious safety net. Like no matter how bad Barcelona or Real Madrid or Bayern Munich or Juventus get, they have the safety net of top four. Like fourth yeah. place for these teams is really easy because of the amount of power that they wield, the amount of money that they have relative to their competition in Spain and Italy, respectively. That I just wonder, like if we brought back that stipulation to the European Cup, brought it back to its roots. Like even if we just trialed run it for a year, like what would like it would mean so much more yeah. for the fans and for the clubs to win it, and then what you do with the rest of it is you basically just revamp the Europa League and make it what the Champions League is now. Like yeah. you put the teams second to third in there, second to fifth, even if you want to be generous to the to the big leagues. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I think, it, and, and you keep the fact that winning it is a place in the European Cup. Like I think yeah. you have to keep that there, and that adds weight then to that competition because 
some of these teams, like like Tottenham, they don't look like they're going to win the league. But if you put them in a cup competition, they might win a Europa League. They might yeah. qualify then for the Europa League, and then that's yeah. hugely important to them as well. And they get a bit of a European success, like uh, it, and, and they'd have done it against big opposition. So I think they're, they're not all as lost if you go with this form with this format. I think it, it could really be something. And then I like I don't think you need to put the Europa League on Thursday. Then like I think Thursday should just be a free day that we we can avoid football. I think it would be nice to have one day a week where you're like, oh yeah, there's no football on. Like that would really help the saturation that we have in the market at the moment because viewership figures are down 35 percent yeah, in the Champions League worldwide. There's 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 a extenuating circumstances for that. The one of the biggest viewing markets in the world, which is the UK, has put all of the Champions League onto. Uh, satellite subscription services so that, that this, immediately reduces from normally getting a couple of million viewers it reduces it down to getting a couple of hundred thousand per match so that you know it's a tenfold decrease this 35 percent decrease though factors in 35 percent from where like it, it factors in both yeah. when bt had a first and now yeah. so it doesn't impact these figures because it, it doesn't take into account what itv and sky used to get when they had the partnership yeah so like i think the fact that they're thirty five down that that much, despite the fact that you can kind of ignore the loss of that big market, and it's not to say that that's not a big like that doesn't matter. It obviously does. But yeah. thirty five percent, even with ignoring this, like it's yeah, down but it's even a trend. further it's a when trend you throughout Europe, like that it's it's been less important and moving fixtures back to earlier times, despite like it might get increased viewers in certain matches, it reduces the overall impact of ratings as well because you've less, you know, a lot of player people aren't tuning in anymore at the 7.45 to watch whatever was on now they're like oh what time is this match on and oh I've missed that match oh well I'm not going to watch anything now or uh, this is on too late I'll watch something else or this is on too early I'll watch something else that kind of has negatively impacted despite kind of it, it's it's a problem with saturating the market there, there's too much on too much there to for people to have to sit through and they, they if you spoil someone and give them too much they'll eventually you know reduce their demand for it yeah, like I, I just get concerned anytime I read about this. Like, there's a report there in the New York Times recently about how Florentino Perez wants to break break away for a Super League, and he was one of the people that initially championed the idea of not doing that when mm. it was brought up a couple of years ago. And then there's Agnelli at Juventus who wants to bring in this new format of four groups of eight, which I think is just worsening the issue we have instead of yeah. coming up with an actual viable solution. Fortunately, it seems like that idea has been shot down by most people associated with it. No, I, I, I think your idea is probably the best I've heard if they were to reintroduce Champions League. The only thing is which there'll be a huge fight over from the big teams over which teams actually get to qualify for that big eight or that big actual Champions League tournament. Like who who you have the big five. So you have England, uh, France, Germany, Spain and Italy. That's five teams. You have the holders, which is six. And then you have what? Uh, the seventh, which is the Europa League champions. So who's the eighth team? What league do you take them from? Do you just rotate it around? Is it Portugal? Is it whoever's the next highest in the coefficient, which would be Portugal, I think, at the moment? Well, how do you mean of the eight? If you were to make it, say, eight teams, that would qualify for this Super Champions League. Well, no, I would say just open it up to 32 teams or however yeah, but you many see leagues are in Europe. All, all, the big, all the big teams will shoot that down in an instant because they don't want those big teams to be on the same level or seemingly on the same level, even if they are or even if it's a complete fallacy that you, they see themselves as above those other teams, but they're not going to allow that. 
Yeah. It's unfortunate because you need... I, I know, like this, I know. This happens in American sport. You have strong commissioners in American sport because of the ways they were... Not the way they were founded, but the way that they evolved in the early 20th century that commissioners were established as the ruling body over all the teams, all the owners, and whatever they say goes. And that's why in baseball you have the likes of the Red Sox and the Yankees being forced to give revenue to smaller teams to support the whole league. I don't think the Yankees or the Red Sox would would happily give revenue over to those smaller teams if they had the choice in the matter but I think that's what you need and you need someone strong in UEFA and with the kind of moral authority which definitely UEFA don't have to come in and say okay we're going to fix this for the good of the whole game and that what we're going to do is basically do a profit sharing arrangement which is what it would become if you start introducing these smaller teams into it Uh, I say smaller teams but champions of smaller leagues into this bigger Champions League tournament while at the same time it's performing the Europa League to make it a more palatable venture somewhere closer to what we used to have in reality because the UEFA Fairs Cup basically used to be what you're describing when the Cup Runners Cup used to be another thing again and I think that system for for all of its ills I think that system did kind of produce good results like winning the UEFA Cup as it used to be or the Fairs Cup as it used to be used to be quite an achievement like it was very something to be proud of in a way that say when Manchester United won the Europa League however many years ago it was now no one really cared and it was a bit of a joke overall for Mourinho in his season and similarly, whenever anyone really wins the Europa League, when Atletico won, won the Europa League, like they didn't really even care. And that was because they'd won it so many times in the past. And Sevilla winning the Europa League on multiple occasions, same thing. No one really cared after a while. Like I don't think Chelsea cared too much that they won it last season, considering they sacked the manager immediately. Yeah, like it, it is a tough sell, obviously. But I think if you can manage to sell to these teams the fact that the Europa League would be of more significance now because they're all in. Like, it would still have that drawing power. People would still watch it. It would still be able to bring in the revenue that the Champions League currently does. Like, I think people would care because we're still seeing the big sides in it. But I I think it would also just give that significance back to the Champions League that I think has been missing over the last however many years. Especially, like, normally, like, at the start of a season, I get excited about the Champions League. But this year, like, when the group stage has been on, I've just been so apathetic about it and even with the last 16 draw on Monday this week I'm just kind of like yeah I don't think there's any matchup really that could really get me going really excited for it in February to come back like it feels like just wake me up when the quarter start <laughs> yeah I get I get I get what you're saying like I'm maybe not as down on it as you are but yeah there there has been a bit of something lacking in up basically up until roughly March of every season then it kind of really kickstarts the the you know the trophy laden end of the season, but yeah the there there is something rot rotting. It's not rotten yet, but it is getting to a stage where I don't know if they're going to be able to fix it. And I think hard decisions have to be made in the next three to five years, especially as you see, like the likes of the big hard hitters of the Champions League era of of the real of the modern Champions League era, the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo of Messi, kind of fading away by the wayside and how we've already seen how tough it's been for Real Madrid to adopt to adapt to a world without Cristiano Ronaldo how Barcelona do how will those two titans of the last 15 years in Champions League do without do going forward how will the likes of every other team like we've seen we've seen Bayern Munich struggle we've seen Juventus struggle at times we've seen like teams that you've seen that you know at the top the at top of the tree of football not be able to cope and as as it goes on, they're going to have to figure a way to kind of make 
the game more sustainable and more interesting, more engaging, because otherwise they're just going to start hemorrhaging supporters, hemorrhaging more money, hemorrhaging more fans, hemorrhaging more viewers, and that's really what's going to make it hurt for all these clubs. Yeah, I've just kind of started looking at the teams that are in the last 16 draw now. Uh, There is a a famous Champions League draw simulator that exists online. Uh, so I'm just gonna go through it here live. Uh, first, first drawn Leon, Leon Valencia. Like, would you care about Leon Valencia? No, would be the short answer. Leon, I would say would win that. But go on. Tottenham, Ju- Tottenham, Juventus. We've seen well, that it's a, you know the history of the Tottenham. Real Madrid, Leipzig. That seems like a dead cert to happen just because it's the soft draw Real Madrid would get. Yeah, Real Madrid, Zidane into the quarters already. Yeah, it's the kind of game that I see would go like 4-2 on aggregate and we'd all... Anyone who watched it will wonder how Real Madrid went through and anyone who didn't watch it... Marcelo still playing. (laughs) Yeah, and anyone who didn't watch it will just assume, ah, yeah, Real Madrid are the better side. Yeah. Uh, The next one I have is Chelsea Bayern Munich 2012 final again. You'd have to imagine Bayern will be up for that considering how poorly their last ventures into an English side in the Champions League was last season against Liverpool and they might have a new manager at that point uh, Atletico against Man City a draw I've wanted over the last few years but they've always denied me uh, I'd say that's well I'm looking at them like oh that's Pep's revenge all over it after the Bayern Munich Atletico match from a few years ago but uh, where Atletico went through and away goals and it was a hectic terrible match really and a lot of goals should have been scored that weren't scored and a lot of goals shouldn't have been scored that were scored uh, but I would you probably look and you say ah that's that's Atletico through then yeah maybe uh, although Atletico can't seem to score themselves at the moment mm. uh, At- Atlanta Barcelona seems like an easy draw for Barcelona yeah Barcelona Atlanta. somehow cruised through 3-1 and not looking very convincing Napoli Paris Saint-Germain <laughs> a replay um, of last year's group stage yeah I, that would could, be an interesting could PSG tie. bottle that one that's what I'm thinking it's like could it's bottler against bottler in that league traditionally it like even when I remember when was it Chelsea won in 2012 and Napoli were yeah. just the better side and still managed to lose to a terrible Chelsea team that actually went on to win the tournament Walter Mazzari I think and then they threw yeah. away a 3-1 first leg lead as well yeah uh, it was ridiculous Bridge. And then finally, uh, in this dream draw, that it that might as well just be the real draw, Dortmund against Liverpool. Well, that uh, you know, here comes the noise, as they say. Uh, I you can't look beyond Liverpool at this point. Middle of February, they'll probably have won the league if if their form continues as is, and they'll be all for going for that treble. Yeah, I think that draw would be fine. I wouldn't be offended by it or anything. There'd be a couple of interesting matches, but again wake me up when the quarters start who's going to win the tournament at this point uh, at this point you see this is tough <laughs> just Zidane is going to win it like I said Liverpool are probably the best team left in it but best team doesn't always win it I know but that's they got to the final the last two years yeah like I, I'd Liverpool be the favourites at this point but I don't think they're going to win it if you know what I mean As we uh, get closer and closer to Christmas now, the fixtures come piling up and they're getting all the more tastier. Uh, next weekend, we've actually got some pretty good fixtures. Everton Arsenal, uh, Saturday afternoon, and then in the evening, Man City against Leicester. Second versus third. How do you see Man City and Leicester going? I, well, 
the easy response would be, oh, this will be a draw, because it's two teams who don't really want to lose this match, uh, and Leicester have a good record against uh, Man City, although I don't think that was before Brendan Rodgers' uh, last season that Leicester won uh, in this reverse fixture. Um, looking at it, like you, Leicester have a very good defensive record, better than Man City's, better than Liverpool's, I believe, as well. They have three goals less than Liverpool this season. Their goals are pretty okay as well. Their goal scored. Man City, they'll have a cup game. I know it's against Oxford, so I'd say a lot of the kids will play against that in, in the midweek. Leicester have had that Leicester, disappointing Leicester draw against game as well. Yeah, but it's the same. I don't think... Um, for for both teams is what I'm saying with this. I don't think either of them are really going to throw a lot behind those cup matches. Uh, if they win, they win. If they don't, they don't. If you know what I mean. I don't think Brendan Rodgers is prioritising the Carabao Cup this year. Yeah, I, it does. Like obviously, it is the kind of game where they they're just both happy to draw. But I think they're so far away from Liverpool now that they both have to kind of go for it. Yeah, but Big Brendan doesn't have to go for it because Big Brendan doesn't expect to win the league. I don't think he ever did. I think his his aim True. for this season, as he stated, was top six, break into that top six. That was the hope for this season. They didn't expect to be clear in second place going into Christmas, which is potentially what could happen. Um, well, they are at the moment. If they get a draw, they're clear in second place. As long as they avoid defeat, they'll be pretty happy with the situation, basically. Um, but yeah, the I... If I was to have a favour for the match, it would be Man City, just because Pep's been there and done it before, and Man City have to start winning matches. And as was it Phil Foden said uh, earlier, a couple of weeks ago, even and they've lost matches since then, they have to win every match between now and the end of the season to even have a hope of catching Liverpool. And if they don't win against Leicester, you could say that's curtains for them, and they'll be looking behind them at who's who's going to come close to third place at that point. And Liverpool basically have a procession where they can afford to lose how many matches. They could afford to lose five matches, roughly. If, to Man if, City, yeah. Yeah, to Man... Like, I don't think Leicester are going to pull out a sustained... You know, they'd have to beat Liverpool in those matches as well, uh, Leicester, to, to really stand a chance to, to catch Liverpool in this whole situation. Not that it will not get closer, because I believe it will get a lot closer before the end of the season. But, you know, 15 points for City or whatever it will be, potentially, would be a lot to overcome, given, you know, 18 matches left. I do think Leicester can win this match though because like Man United have shown the template, Wolves have shown the template of what you can do at the Etihad against this side, this Man City side, and I think. But have Norwich shown the template that, of what to do against Leicester? I don't think Man I don't think Man City will look at that Norwich game as a as a concept to how they can do something differently to take out Leicester. I think they'll just play their game as they always do. Whereas Brendan Rodgers, I think. I think it'll suit Leicester to to play more like Man United and Wolves do, especially with Jamie Verdi on the break. Like that high line, Jamie Verdi. I think I think he could, he could be having a party this Christmas. Well, he's certainly top scorer. So, although he didn't get he didn't get a goal for a ninth game in a row, which I was disappointed. Well, it was given. Yeah, it was given as a known goal. Yeah, and right, rightly so. Yeah. Yeah, but still, it was, you know, it was, it was going, going in. It was going in. Yeah, maybe he'll go to the appeals panel. He should, he should, he should, he should. I swear on my daughter's life and, and all that. Oh, yeah. Well, Harry it worked Kane. for a big hurricane. Uh, and then finally, we'll close up the show and we'll look at Frank Lampard going, playing against uh, the master, Jose Mourinho. I think uh, the, Jose the will enjoy that match an awful lot. I think he'll enjoy he it a lot more than Frank Lampard will. Um, I think Chelsea, it's almost a must win for Chelsea at this point to kind of arrest this this form they've been having like to be five wins and five matches five well, five losses and five matches after if if they'd lose that that match 
which would be very unfortunate for Frank Lampard in the kind of the the early season record he he built up. But you know, as as Jonathan Wilson said, there was a reckoning, as we said earlier, that there was something like that coming. Spurs, on the other hand, have been very fortunate this whole season to get any points, really. Not any points, but in a lot of matches, they've been flattering to the sea, and that's kind of continued under Mourinho. Do I see them getting better before the Christmas? I don't really, and I think maybe the last few weeks might catch up with oh, it's, with Mourinho. Like they deservedly lost to Manchester United, and they could deservedly lose again. I think uh, Chelsea. I think Chelsea might sue Tottenham in this match in a way that Man United didn't. Like I think Chelsea will be given a lot of the ball. I think Tottenham will be very, very happy to go out and try to frustrate Chelsea. And I think they can't catch them on the break. Yeah. Because Chelsea leave a lot of gaps in, in midfield. Uh, and just generally in around the pitch, they leave a lot of gaps. Uh, I think Tottenham are good enough to exploit. Uh, if Deli Alli can kind of keep up the form he's displayed recent weeks, I think it could be a good match for him. Uh, but it'll be entertaining. Well, maybe not entertaining in, in the <laughs> yeah, sense that it'll be a good football sense. match. It will be well, a fun, it'll, it'll be a tactical battle of some sort. It'll be fun just to see Mourinho and Frank go at it uh, for the second time. Frank Frank did him last season, of course, on penalties in in the League Cup with Derby County yeah. at Old Trafford. Uh, so this is their second meeting, the first big meeting between the two. And of course, Mourinho, the pundit, criticised Frank at the start of the season. So I'm sure that'll play a part in the build up to this game as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Frank Lampard will make a joke and then be very serious about how much he respects <laughs> Jose Mourinho and his managerial ability and his ability as a pundit, and how hard of a job he has, both as a Sky pundit and as manager at Tottenham Hotspur. Um, I think it'll be an interesting match tactically. I, I agree with you. I think uh, Spurs will sit back and try to exploit the space that that Chelsea leave behind when they push everyone forward and leave that you know, big gap between where the Chelsea defence lies and the Chelsea attack starts I think it'll be a bigger test for Frank Lampard because every time he's come up against a superior side this season he has failed basically and um, whether he'll be able to actually come up against the Spurs side who are maybe not superior but certainly have more experience in, in a lot of areas of the pitch will they be able to um, pin back Spurs with enough attacking ferocity to stop them picking them off on the break yeah, certainly a crucial match, and uh, I'm looking forward to next weekend just generally. I think there's uh, some good games on next week as we really head into the thick of it now at Christmas. Happy uh, Christmas. Uh, yeah, we're getting there. We're, we're only a week away, really. Uh, it's coming sooner than you think. So uh, thank you for being here, Andrew. And, thank uh, you for having me, Declan, we'll... and trailing off in your the way that only you can. <laughs> only the way I can and uh, you know thank you for listening and hopefully we'll have a lot to talk about next week uh, so uh, we'll be back again next week thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode then don't forget you can tell family and friends about the show spread the word of the Total Football Takeover you can also follow us on social media at the TF Pod on Twitter and Total Football Pod on Instagram you can also be found on podcast services including Spotify by searching Total Football Podcast the more the merrier that's what we always say